Full Contact Cannabis. This is Harold Jarbo, a.k.a. The Old Ham Farmer, and you have stumbled in once again to Full Contact Cannabis with my co-host, Mark Stepp of Uppercut Media in Los Angeles, and Abby McCullough in Nashville, and then Teresa Bennett of Hemp Grower Magazine. She's the editor of Hemp Grower Magazine. Hi, thanks for having me. All right. First of all, how long have you been with the editor of Hemp Grower Magazine? So I have been editor since uh, I believe it was February of this year. I became editor. Um, I started working on the magazine as associate editor back at the beginning of 2020. And uh, Hemp Grower came into fruition when? So we launched our website in 2019, and our first print issue was uh, November, December of 2019. I couldn't think of a more dynamic time to have gotten into hemp. I mean, 2019 was a pivotal year. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been super exciting ever since. Kind of feels like every year is pivotal in a way. You know, we have our sister publications, Cannabis Business Times and Cannabis Dispensary. So we sort of had a, a foot in the cannabis market and uh, yeah, just decided to expand into hemp. It's been great. So hemp grower is kind of positioned towards what part of the hemp industry or is it the totality? I mean, your guys are called hemp growers. Right. Yes. So we do focus very heavily on cultivation. Um, we focus mostly on the U.S. market, do have some Canadian coverage, um, looking to sort of expand on covering some other countries. But yes, our main focus is U.S. Um, hemp cultivation. We also do write about some, you know, we dabble in extraction, processing, and other aspects, just general business Um articles and topics. Um, we also cover some sort of end uses of hemp, but all sort of geared around the cultivation side of things. And 2019 was the year that basically United States went nuts and grew about eight times more hemp than the market could absorb and mm -hmm. prices plummeted. Uh, yeah. we, we, when you entered into wanting to do the idea of this magazine, was that on the horizon with you guys? I think that with a new industry, any new industry, this sort of trajectory is to somewhat be expected, you know, the sort of market correction, overproduction, and then consequential market correction. Um, I'm not sure if anybody, I don't know if we knew the extent of the, what the oversupply would be. I'm not sure if anybody really did. Um, so, you know, just kind of learning along with everybody else and um, things will work themselves out, but um, certainly a tough thing to be dealing with right now. In 2020, when this all started, you know, I mean, literally, I mean, at Tennessee Homegrown, a little plug there, uh, 2019 was our best year. It was, Un and we felt totally uneasy about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and the only reason, and it's not because I'm particularly clairvoyant or anything, I had seen what had happened in recently in Oregon and Washington State where they overproduced mm -hmm. and prices plummeted. 
So we kind of had an inkling. Plus, you know, we stayed in touch with our ag department. And when in 2019, talking to dear old Katie, which is the person we, our point person at the Tennessee Department of Ag, and she told me, told me there were 4,000 licensed farmers in Tennessee. Wow. And that's when you went, oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, maybe this is, you know, and so we kind of pulled back, went more into R&D and held our breath. No one saw COVID. Uh, so this is my question. In 2020, what do you think had the more of effect? Was it COVID or just that just blatant over amount of, of over farming of, of, of biomass? You know, of course, those two things combined really sort of, I don't know, they really kind of created a bomb in the market. But uh, I sort of think that I think the oversupply had a bigger, had a larger impact because at least for the farmers, um, you know, of course, COVID created these, um, you know, it created some barriers to finding buyers and, you know, things like that. But I don't think COVID really, I don't think it had much effect on the end demand for, for the product. And, um, you know, just even though COVID hit, you know, farmers could still do their jobs and things like that. So um, I really think that the oversupply was sort of the biggest issue that people were dealing with in 2020 and still into this year. Well, all right. So now we're in 2021. Mm -hmm. We've went through this, going through the desert here for, for hemp growers, especially that are trying to grow for cannabinoids. How has this changed your mission statement at Hemp Grower? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think we sort of, um, we always want to stick with our core mission of just supporting legal hemp cultivators by providing them information on all sides of the industry. But for, you know, us on the editorial side, we really want to provide a clear, realistic image of what's actually going on in the market. You know, we don't want to be telling people this, you know, we don't want to still be telling that same story that hemp is going to make you a ton of money. Hemp is going to make you rich. Um, that's just not really the case for most people. And just, we, we know that there's a huge oversupply in the market. We know that probably not as many people should be growing hemp, at least for cannabinoids as they are in the country. So, you know, I think we want our coverage to give a realistic um, conveyance for readers. And so we've been focused on not only telling the issue, but giving solutions too. So our cover story, um, I think it was, yeah, it was in May our cover story was about the oversupply issue and sort of gave uh, it gave a deep dive into like six different strategies that um, hemp all along the supply chain people in the hemp industry can use to sort of um, sell their oversupply or like help mitigate the issue down the road. So yeah, I think for us, we just wanna make sure that we're providing real information that growers can rely on and not sort of trying to paint this rosy, rosy portrait of the market. One thing I will have to commend you for is that you kind of, in the last few months, you guys have done this, which leads to my next question. Why are so many people kind of 
resistant to the message, ignoring the message, or thinking it will happen to everybody except them? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, when I was first getting into the hemp industry and learning about it, I kept hearing, you know, this is going to be the cash crop. Hemp is going to be the, you know, the money maker for farmers. And to me, that was so mind blowing because, because hemp is so amazing. You know, it has all these different things that you could do with it. It has like nearly endless possibilities. So for it to not only have those properties, but also be a cash crop, it just sort of seems like this miracle plant almost. Um, and I think people maybe want to hold on to that um, perception because it, you know, that's, that's why a lot of people I think got into it for not only the money, but just about its potential. And I think a lot of people want to see it reach that potential, um, both on like the, you know, therapeutic side and also the industrial side. So I don't know, that's sort of my guess as to why people are still, still growing it at the rate that they are. Um, uh, Jarbo says it's a miracle every day. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's not wrong. <laughs> uh, well, okay, which leads me to the one of the questions when I got into this, and I still get it a lot. Like, we're kind of happy doing our little medical cannabinoid, Tennessee Homegrown. It's a small little cult company. We don't have any dreams of taking over the market or things like that, but we continually find people who get into hemp and don't really care about hemp, but they just want to grow weed. Yeah, I can see that because of how, you know, difficult it is to sort of get into the le the state legal, you know, cannabis marijuana market. I mean, there's so many sort of hoops you have to jump through to get those licenses. I think hemp is just a more accessible um, avenue for that. I'm guessing that's why, but yeah, you know, um, I think you guys say you don't have any dreams of getting big or anything like that. And I think that's really sort of the way to go for some small companies is just sort of accepting that, you know, you're sort of fulfilling a need in your area or in your sort of niche. Um, so yeah, I think that's important for businesses to sort of understand. Well, let's go into this because, all right, when you at Hemp Grower, you run the gamut from really small farmers to industrial, I mean, people who do it on an industrial scale, right? Mm-hmm, yep. Well, this is the one thing I've found out. It does not seem like large-scale cannabis operations have done very well. I think that the large-scale hemp companies will be reserved for the industrial side because that is where you want a lot of the production to come in um, is with the, the fiber and the grain because those are just bigger, you know, I think they will be bigger markets. They're not at the moment, um, but, and it's just easier to grow industrial hemp in that way on a larger scale, um, just as far as the way you harvest it. Um, it's easier to, you know, make those processes more mechanical and it does sort of fit in with the way other crops like corn or, uh, and soy are produced. Um, but as far as like 
the CBD side, you know, anybody who's trying to scale up in, in that area is facing way, way more competition. Um, the demand is just not there for all that hemp and for all that product. And I think that's why those companies are having such a hard time. Plus, when you think about the, the state legal cannabis side and, and uh, Delta 9 THC production, like those things are done generally on a smaller scale, like in a more boutique setting, indoor craft um, cultivation. And so I think that's the way CBD and, you know, hemp direct cannabinoid production will eventually sort of shake out. Is Hemp Grower Magazine going to start gently pushing people out of cannabinoids into oil and textiles? Well, um, you know, don't want to necessarily push people in any direction, uh, but just do want to, you know, lay out all the facts. And we have been from the beginning, we've worked hard to try to strike that balance um, cannabinoid production, but also the fiber and grain sides, because those have been so sort of ignored among the hemp industry. You know, from the for sort of very beginning with the sources that we've talked to, a lot of people have said industrial hemp is the end game for the hemp industry. And so I think that's something we've tried to sort of hit home from the beginning is that, you know, this whole CBD thing, it's not the whole picture. So yeah, I think we'll definitely continue to sort of tell that story. Are, are you familiar with Richard Rose? Yeah, yes, I am. Right. Well, we had Richard on. And one of the things that we kind of delved into a little bit has been this running feud between hemp and high, or hemp, high CBD and then THC which, you know, one of the things it's always been is that basically the whole thing, it's a different plant, it's a cousin, it's totally different and all that thing, basically throwing cannabinoid production kind of under the bus. Do you think that in these hemp organizations and associations, they're going to be a little bit more realistically even-handed look at the industry? You know, I hope so. Um you know, I think the intersection between, you know, where hemp and uh, higher THC cannabis sort of cross is that cannabinoid production. And, um, you know, we've written an article about how Delta 9 THC just still gets so much more, it reaps so much more profit than, than CBD or really any other cannabinoid. So I think the cannabis market will sort of stay almost exclusively, you know, THC producing. And I think these minor cannabinoids, I think the hemp market will always sort of be um, in a way producing these more minor cannabinoids just because it's, it's just not as lucrative as THC. So for the people who are jumping through all these hoops to get into these state legal cannabis markets, I think they'll continue to focus on THC and hemp will continue to focus on the more minor cannabinoids. As we go, we uh, try to stress to people about the market when it comes in regards to, you know, the actual hemp oil and, and textiles. Mm -hmm. How much of a lag time do you think there is between actually getting receptivity for the public? Like me, I have to admit, 
this is going to be my seventh year of planning hemp. And it's only within the last two years that we really have stressed trying to wear more hemp clothing. Mm-hmm. Hard question here. How much hemp clothing do you own? <laughs> oh, that is a hard question. You know, I, I do not own any hemp clothing and the whole hemp textile thing is sort of really complex when you start digging into it um, because there are different types of textiles that you can make out of hemp. And, you know, I think a lot, most, if not all of like the hemp clothing that's out there right now is not necessarily made sustainably. And a lot of it is still made with hemp from other countries. Um, you can say it, China. Right. It's not U.S. grown, um, you know, and it's it's very expensive. Like if you do find U.S. grown or textiles that are made out of U.S. grown hemp, it's really expensive. And so those are like some major barriers that are um, in the way for getting a hemp derived textile market in the U.S. And I think that is still a ways off um, getting some sustainable textiles for with U.S. grown hemp. I think that's still a ways away. And I think that the industry is going to aim for some lower hanging fruit first. Like, um, you know, you hear so much about hempcrete and um, animal bedding and things like that for fiber applications. Um, but that said, there are some efforts, you know, to start incorporating U.S. grown hemp into textiles. I know Patagonia has a uh, partnership with Colorado farmers. I also saw Levi's has put out a hemp collection. I don't really know the specifics of that though, but yeah, I do think that textiles are still sort of a ways away for us. Our second year we grew uh, for fiber and we grew a lot, Mm -hmm. you know, we grew like what, 35, 40 acres of it, but it ended up being in the field because the people who said they were going to take it and process it, you know, once they saw that there wasn't that the market they thought there was decided not to do it. So Mm -hmm. here we are that egg for the chicken or whatever, Mm -hmm. because of the one thing being a farmer, I understand how much of a commitment do I do to R and D and developing to grow for fiber, which is Mm -hmm. probably more the future than oil. Mm -hmm. If, I don't know if there's going to be something on the back end of it. Conversely, here I am. If I want to have a decortification plant that's got any oomph to it, I'm mm-hmm. probably talking about a couple million dollars when it's all said license, tax license, dealer prep, land, and labor. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to probably have to have a minimum of 10,000 acres plus to run through it to pay it off. And that's kind of the quandary, aren't we, when it comes to textiles in, in the U.S.? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the whole chicken and egg thing, you know, that's sort of what everybody is saying. And, um, you know, I think it's really just going to take some, like, driven um, investors who really want to see this industry come to fruition. I think it's probably going to take them to start investing in this. Um, you know, you mentioned farmers doing R&D, which is great. Like you guys are doing such a service to the industry. I think that's a really sort of unique situation uh, for farmers um, 
it's having to do this, their own research and everything. But yeah, I just think, I think investors are going to have to start putting more money into this if we want to see it come to fruition, because like you said, you know, you just, as a farmer, you have to have a buyer or just, unless you're going for research purposes, um, you know, there's no point in growing if you don't have a buyer at the end of it. So, and I do think that people are getting interested. I think people do want to see this industry in the U.S. It's just a matter of when and who, I guess. <laughs> we, you mentioned about the buyer, but uh-huh. what percentage of the, especially the biomass, since that's 90% of what's being farmed, what percentage of, do you, of that do you think has a buyer? Mm. Or is it most of it speculative? It seems like a lot of it was speculative last year. And um, I, you know, I cannot remember if we had that in our story or not how many people had a buyer, but um, many people didn't. And, you know, they have tens of thousands of pounds still sitting in storage, which it's such a high number. And um, yeah, I think that was a huge, huge problem the past couple of years, but I think Hopefully people are starting to, you know, learn and understand that you just can't grow so much without knowing what's going to happen to it. Has Hemp Grower Magazine had to alter their profit model since all this has happened? Um, No, no, we have stayed the same uh, profit model. We are, you know, advertiser based. So all of our subscriptions are still free and everything. that's sort of how it is across our entire publishing company. So um, yeah, thankfully we, we haven't really had to change anything about that. Now I know Hemp Industry Daily, which is a competitor and I apologize. They <laughs> have transcended, a, they do expos. Does Hemp Grower have Grower Magazine and your sister publications, are you into the expo business? We are, we are. So we, um, Cannabis Business Times is hosting its annual cannabis conference this year in person, which I'm very excited about. Um, That will be August 24th through the 26th uh, at the Paris Hotel in Las Vegas. And then Hemp Grower Magazine, we are putting on our debut hemp conference this year, which I am super excited about. Um, So that will be November 8th through 10th at the Rosin Center Hotel in Orlando, Florida. Um, and we have a, we've just put together our education session schedule. So we, um, at all of our conferences, we're very big on the education. So we, um, you know, just put together our schedule of uh, education sessions, which should be going up on our website very soon. And I think we have a great program. And, um, you know, in addition to that, we do have expo halls. Uh, at both events. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to the in-person events again. How long have you been going to Hemp Expos? So I, because I only joined um, Hemp Grower early 2020, I only went to one, I've only been to one Canvas Expo, never been to a Hemp Expo. And then, you know, COVID hit pretty soon after. So I've only been to one. (laughs) Well, the reason I say that is because when I first started doing them, which was, gosh, my first one was a hemp history event in, I think, 2016 or 2017. It's Mm -hmm. sort of a blur that Mm -hmm. the expos were more about activism than actual commerce. 
And mm -hmm. now it seems like the drift towards, you know, that, you know, letting the public come in and, you know, see, see all these things has gone more to B2B. Uh, at your expo, is this, what kind of a, I mean, is it more B2B or is it still activism to a large degree? Yeah, it's definitely uh, B2B. Um, you know, we have sessions, education sessions for like, you know, that could be of interest to researchers and to may maybe sort of local lawmakers or lobbyists. But on the whole, um, we are definitely very much B2B focused and providing information and networking opportunities to businesses in the industry. One of the things that we noticed this year at uh, NOCO, which is the, I guess, the grand, the gorilla of, of X, hemp expos, was that they had booths, a whole slew of D8, plus mushrooms for the first time. Oh. So we're kind of curious, at your, your expo, how much are we doing what you want to call minor cannabinoids and auxiliary models of income? Yeah, so I don't think that we will be very focused on the, the mushroom side of things. You know, we're, we're going to try to stick to like the marijuana, THC cannabis for the cannabis conference. And then uh, there will be some hemp uh, related things at the cannabis conference. Um, which I'm guessing will be more cannabinoid focused just because of the overlap those industries do have. But then at the hemp grower conference, um, we will be focused on just like all three sort of sectors of the hemp industry. So cannabinoid fiber grain. Um, and yeah, that will, that I don't see us really um, straying too much outside of those topics there. Let's go into D8. Okay. Because it hit like at Tennessee Homegrown a year and a half ago, we'd never heard of it until Abby came in and told us that she'd seen this at a smoke shop and we need to investigate. Now it's about 35, 38% of our sales and it has actually cannibalized some of our CBD sales. Hmm. I'm going to ask you, D8, boon or bust? Is it a... <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh that's a tough one to call this this whole d8 thing has been so fascinating it it seemed to sneak up sort of so quickly i'm sure if you're really in the industry it didn't pop up as quickly as it sort of no did. no it surprised everybody <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and so the first time I really heard about D8 was when the DEA put out its like interim final rule. I think that was back in August where it first came into question over whether D8 was legal or not. And then all of a sudden it's like this March, things just went insane with it. And it's a hard one because it provides great opportunity for people in the business, especially those with the oversupply. Uh, but it, I think it also sort of sets, it, it has potential to set the industry back in a way because people have worked so hard to tell lawmakers that hemp is not psychoactive and there's no need to regulate it like that. And um, that's sort of why hemp was legalized because it's, it, 
it's seen as not psychoactive and now you have this d8 thing throwing everything into question well okay now but that's what i'm saying is when i mentioned yeah. it earlier isn't the whole thing that hemp couldn't get you high was a myth right right and that, that's the thing that gets me is is that this in a way didn't this kind of force that sort of like oh we're hip we we don't have anything get you high we're good they're evil mm-hmm. okay <laughs> right. if you can make da out of cbd uh now what yeah I, gosh it's a tough one and um i don't know just just with how quickly it sort of came up it sort of makes me think maybe it's maybe it's sort of like a trend, especially with how quickly now that states are responding and banning it. I mean, they're shutting it down almost as quickly as it sort of opened up. I don't know where we go with D8 from here. Um, but again, it, it brings up, you know, that interesting question of like drawing the line between cannabis and hemp and whether we really can draw a line. Um, well, but what yeah. I've noticed on this, the states that have decided they were going to ban it mm-hmm. we got michigan rec state new york rec state colorado rec state is there a trend here gosh it sounds like it uh, that's what i'm saying is this over because oh my god this is a, like we got to control it or is this once again follow the money mm, that's a great point that's a great observation um I've definitely heard of competition, you know, sort of competition between the cannabis and the hemp industries over the cannabinoids. Um, So I definitely think that could be playing into it. I mean, the whole regulation thing, I think that has scared states from the get go. You know, I'm sure it it won't, it doesn't take much convincing for them to make it, you know, illegal to just shut it. I was going to say though, but here in the states that, all right, that don't have like texas Mm -hmm. texas just had a little thing and nope it's still legal in texas tennessee Mm -hmm. there is no inclination to make d8 illegal but Mm -hmm. tennessee has a cannabinoid industry so that's one of the things about it because of the laws in tennessee it's i mean seriously there's a reason why there was four thousand licenses in 2019 and why companies were moving from Colorado, California, whatever, into Tennessee to, to set up processing. Why would Tennessee have any inclination to throw the baby out with the bathwater? That's very true. You know, that is something we have been sort of curious about it because we've noticed we our um, readership from Tennessee is just so much higher than any other state actually. So yeah, I've just been sort of curious about why that is. Um, do you know? So can you talk a little bit about why so many people kind of flock to Tennessee for him? Yes. <laughs> In 2014, uh, when they actually legalized, I walked into the Tennessee Department of Agriculture and got the assistant commissioner of the, of the TDA. Mm-hmm. And I sat down and I said, this is what I want to do. Because The law was passed, just like you said, this is going to be seed oil and textiles. But Mm -hmm. as the law was written, it didn't say anything yes or no about cannabinoids. Mm -hmm. So I sat down with this man and I said, this is what I want to do. I want to grow for cannabinoids. And he looked at me and he said, son, I don't care what you do. 
as long as you don't go over 0.3 delta 9 THC. Mm. That's all I needed to hear. Mm. So we got out there and started doing it and started just, you know, you just kind of start making extracts and this and that. And then in 2018, are you familiar with Operation Candy Crush? No, no, I'm not. All right. A well-intentioned district attorney in uh, Rutherford County decided they were going to go after the smoke shops and things like that that were selling CBD. And on one day, they rounded up 23 people and 21 closed 21 shops, a couple of which we had products in. So there was a total freak out. But the thing that happened was there was pushback, a lot of pushback. And the couple of the companies that ran companies had good lawyers. So basically it forced the state of Tennessee to make an interpretation of law. And basically it said in February of 2018, like what that gentleman said at the TDA, you could sell flour, you could do all this. So we were one of the first states where flour hit. Mm. And so in May of 2018, we had a medical style dispensary and people were lined up for a good block to get into this place. It spawned an industry, partly two reasons. One, um, there was no wreck, so there was no competition. So if you could get smokable flour and it got you buzzed, which quite frankly, because you can get hemp here, hemp flour in Tennessee, that's two or 3% THC once you decarb it. But as it's almost all, you know, THCA, which is legal, so you people had this flower market, and and then that kind of spawned it. Once money, and you, that's how it goes. Stars stores started opening, then people started investing, and it was about that period where people just, I mean, it was it was open, and so people were coming here, and and by 2019, because they saw all the money was being made in 2018, mm-hmm. it just went nuts. And then the other thing is, you don't have to have a processor's license in Tennessee. Interesting. All you have to do is register. Now, wow. if it's made for human consumption, it has to be made in a commercial kitchen. But if you want to do topicals, this, that, and the other, you can make it in your garage. Wow. Interesting. That's super interesting. And, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, it's funny that the these the Delta 8 market and it seems the smokable hemp market are sort of the most lucrative right now. And yet they're also the most controversial. Well, but it's it's a filling a void. And, that, mm-hmm. and then, you know, the one of the things that... COVID did do, which is, you know, what was DA a cannabinoid for its time in that people were very, very anxious. And we, from the get-go at, at Tennessee Homegrown, we get these things, well, do you have anything stronger? Well, we didn't. If we wanted to be compliant, we could do high CBD with a you know fair amount of decar- undecarboxylated THCA, but it was still going to be one or 2% which was not what they were looking for. As soon as the D8 thing came, people were more anxious. And have you done much D8, Teresa? 
You know, I haven't. Um, I've been meaning to to try it though. I have not tried it yet. Well, the thing that why we have found through our customers is that Delta Eight does not get you anxious if you do too much of it. Hmm. Which is the biggest biggest draw of this because um, one of the reasons why I'm not a big fan of D9 edibles is because I can take them two or three times, same amount, have a great time. And on the fourth time I do it in an hour and a half, two hours in, I'm going, this is not much as, as much fun as I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So, so we had this, and we, we actually started selling D8 and do some of the rec states. And that's when you knew, oh my goodness, there's this quantitative amount of people that actually prefer D8, which if you talk to the D9 guys, they'll all tell you it's just a fad, but I don't think so. I, I think people really like this cannabinoid. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It seemed, you know, there's sort of a cannabinoid for everybody. Um, so definitely can see them being two different markets serving sort of two different types of consumers. Um, so uh, I'm curious, whether, um, you know, how your smokable uh, sales sort of compare to the D8? Well, at Tennessee Homegrown, we have not dwelled into taking D8 and spraying it over flour yet. It's a product that gets you high, but it's not a very good tasting product. And so we've been hesitant to kind of go into that. We do an indoor uh hemp flour, really high quality. It's a really good um, pre-roll. But right now, I would say most of the hemp flour being grown and processed in Tennessee is getting D8 slathered on it. Mm-hmm. Whereas we do, we know we do have carts, we've got the topicals, the edibles, uh, you know, and, but like I said, uh, it, it is an interesting market that's kind of evolving. And then what have you heard about D10 and, and CBDP? We're, we're working on a D10 story right now, actually. But um, other than that, I don't know a whole lot about D10. Um, and then, sorry, what was the other one you said? CBDP? C- C- yes. Okay. I, and there's a THC uh, P too. It's supposedly 20 times more active. Wow, really? Okay. I um I have I am not familiar with the with the P cannabinoids. We aren't either. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that which leads back to this is just like people are dwelling into D10, right? And it just seems in, in the cannabis industry, our industry, everybody's looking for that next like instantaneous money crop or or cannabinoid. Do you guys going to start dwelling more into labs? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, um, you know, we cover, we definitely have written about testing in labs uh, before, um, but there's always room to write about more, of course. Um, It's just, it's a very complex topic to break down so it does take some time to cut to write stories like that but um yeah we we definitely will continue it's one of our biggest frustrations is testing Mm. 
uh, you, uh, this is true. You can send the same sample to four different labs. And if you can get two of them to come in close, you consider that's the one you go with. It's been horrible. Wow. Um, and, and have you sent to like any DEA registered labs yet or you're not doing that yet? Well, yeah. I mean, the first uh -huh. lab we used was uh, up in uh, Spokane. And they then, but it's a lab, God, lab business is a tough way to make a living. You have a huge amount of equipment, finding really qualified people to do it that you, you know, because let's face it, evidently, if you know how all the equipment works, you want to get paid. So it's really hard to staff people with, you know, paying eight, 15, $18 an hour because they have turnover. So, and so it's been really, really interesting. And the reason I bring that up is, when D8 first happened, right, we had to find a lab that could test for it, who had established protocols because of most of the DEA labs at that time, they didn't have any protocols established for D8. You can't find something unless you, you're looking for it and you know what, and that was the thing about it. There was no money to develop lab protocol for D8 because no one ever asked for it, which is now interesting because now we have D10 and we've kind of played with that and trying to find a lab that can, can honestly tell you, yep, that's D10, you know, because we get lab reports back and they tell us, well, it's like 69% D10. And then they couldn't tell us what the rest of the 31% was. Seriously? Wild. Is it like fats? <laughs> <laughs> so... But I mean, all this is going on in the industry, which is kind of, you know, it's, 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 it makes it really, really hard to kind of navigate this environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, we have written about the, the lack of standards between testing labs and it is, it is concerning um, because, you know, it's like what, what do we have here? Who can who can really tell us? And um, well, especially if you got a farmer who comes out there, the lab told him, "Hey, you guys are clear, right?" And if for some unknown reason you get pulled over, they decide, "Yep, we're going to check your hemp." They send it to a, and and we have no idea. And this is the thing: us farmers, when people that are supposedly that are overseeing us, we don't have any faith in our labs either. I'm, you know, they're, let's face it, I love the TDA, but the TDA is not in the lab business. What is the most common um, question that you get from farmers today or just in the past year, I guess? I think what a lot of people just want to know is just how to find a buyer, actually. Um, that's, you know, what a lot of people have been asking us to sort of cover. Um, I wouldn't say, you know, I don't think we delve a whole lot into how exactly to go about finding a farmer or finding a buyer because it is sort of, you know, it's sort of a, a little tough to cover, but we are going to have a session at our hemp grower conference about that and uh, definitely plan on covering that in articles as well. But yeah, I think people just want to know how they can sell their product. Um, and that sort of lines up with the issues that we've been seeing this year and last year. So hoping to help them out with that soon here. 
What would you say if a farmer did come up and ask you that? It's sort of one of those things where you just have to kind of be networking and um, be advocating for yourself and branding yourself well. And, you know, I'm not sure a whole lot of farmers um, get into branding a lot with, with other um, crops that they grow. Um, so I think branding is sort of, a, you know, a, maybe a new thing that growers have to grasp in the hemp industry. Um, so basically, they just have to be able to tell people what makes their product unique or what makes their operations unique, um, what makes them worth buying from. And um, that's kind of the bare minimum, but but establishing a sort of branding for your product for even, you know, just for your crop is, and for your farm is uh, even better because it gives name recognition and represents dependability and, um, yeah, so so it's a lot of just marketing and networking. I was reading your very good article uh, in the Hemp Grower magazine about the oversupply, which has been the leading subject today. It mentions that a lot of the oversupply problem can be contributed to the FDA's lack of action uh, as far as the legal framework. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? You know, the whole FDA thing is, is interesting because I think regulation is sometimes seen seen uh, in a negative light, um, you know, that regulations are maybe stifling. Um, but in this case, so many people in the CBD, I think a lot of people want to see regulations from the FDA because what's happening is they're not able to get their products into major retailers. So they're not able to get that exposure for their products that they would be getting if it were just a, anything else, you know? Um, because there are no regulations from the FDA, re major retailers are not stocking their shelves with CBD products. And um, that's been really stifling for the industry. Um, so, you know, with FDA regulation, I think that would just be a huge breakthrough because it would give retailers the okay, hopefully, um, to, you know, go ahead and, and start stocking these products. And it would just, I think it would really open the floodgates. You know, I guess it all depends on how those regulations sort of what they look like. Um, I think a lot of people are just kind of assuming that it will that the FDA will be like, okay, you know, you're good to start selling all these products as long as they have this, this, and this. But um, you know, we'll just have to wait and see uh, what the FDA really says about CBD products. But um, I think any sort of okay for any sector, whether it's like CBD topicals or ingestibles, I think anything would be an improvement. And that's what a lot of people are waiting on. Teresa, I cannot thank you enough. You have been a great guest. You really have. And the reason why is because I didn't have to talk much. And I love that. <laughs> well, so, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> now, we're at the point, do you have anything to shamelessly self-promote? Um, I think I've got my shameless plugs in already. Just to reiterate, our cannabis conference is August 24th through 26th. And our debut hemp grower conference is from November 8th through 10th in Orlando.
Hemp Grower's website is hempgrower.com and you could get a free subscription there. You can find a link to the Hemp Grower Conference there. So um, pretty much any information you need is at hempgrower.com. And uh, you can also reach out to me directly at uh, tbennett at gie.net. Awesome. Thank you, Teresa. Thank you, Abby. Thank you, Step. This is the old hemp farmer, Harold Jarbo. And you, we have wasted another probably 45, 50 of your minutes of it listening to Full Contact Cannabis. As always, keep one eye on the weather and the other eye on the market. Thank you, folks. Full Contact Cannabis is a Tennessee homegrown and uppercut media production. You can find Tennessee Homegrown on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website, tnhomegrown.com, for more background and information covered in our podcast. Full Contact Cannabis is created by Jarbo, the old hemp farmer. Audio recordist, Abby McCullough. Post-production services provided by Uppercut Media and can be reached at uppercutmedia.com.